Hello and welcome to Buzz Me In, a podcast by media associates for media associates. My name is Eliza Cohen. And I'm Laurel O'Dell. And we're both media associates at CMS and your podcast hosts. Buzz is a network for professionals in the media industry. And the goal of this podcast is to speak to some of those professionals to find out what it is they do, how they do it, and how they got to where they are today. We'll also cover some key trends in the media industry by sector. Today's episode is on the broadcast news industry, and our guest is Nina Goswami. Nina is the BBC's creative diversity lead for news and also spearheads initiatives, including 5050, to support the BBC's aspiration that its on-air representation reflects society. Nina is also a journalist and, before her current post, was a BBC News senior producer. During lockdown and now, she's keeping her hand in, though, by output editing the BBC One national bulletins a couple of times a month. She's worked in media her whole professional career, including at the Sunday Times and the Sunday Telegraph. Welcome, Nina. Senior producer and journalist is a much cooler job title than lawyer. Tell us a little bit about your career path. How did you come to be a journalist and what path led you to your current role? Hi, both of you. Thank you so much for uh, having me on your podcast. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, yeah, I don't know if um, producer and uh, journalist is the coolest titles, but um, <laughs> but I'm really pleased um, to, to have been following the, the path that I have. And actually, it kind of started in a bizarre way, actually. My brother is 11 years older than I am. And um, when he was looking at kind of going to university, we we're all sitting around the family kitchen table. So I was about eight years old at this point. And uh, Moira Stewart um, was on in the background on the six o'clock news. So uh, for anyone who's uh, on the younger side, uh, Moira Stewart um, was a, a stalwart um, news presenter uh, back in the day. Um, and um, she was actually um, one of the first black uh, female news presenters um, in the UK as well. And Anyway, there's this moment of silence uh, around the kitchen table and um, my dad just was staring at the screen of the TV um, in the background and just went, Nina, I can see you doing that one day. Um, and all of a sudden it was like, oh, that's a really interesting idea. Um, I kind of, obviously at eight years old, everything, um, anything on TV seems really cool. Um, but as I kind of got older, obviously I realised that perhaps in front of cameras, not necessarily where I wanted to be, but the idea of journalism really stuck with me. And um, I actually went to uh, Queen Mary uh, University of London to do my law LLB, um, and um, I didn't do it to go into the legal profession. Um, I did it because I wanted um, the analytical skills, the, the ability to argue, um, that kind of element um, coming through in in my work. And, you know, it's a real transferable skill set that, that we all have as a result of um, doing that kind of legal training. So um, not that obviously undergrad is legal training, but you know what I mean. Um, in terms of um, having that kind of analytical brain, I, I suppose, is the best way of putting it. Um, and also at university, while I was doing that, I was kind of doing all the other things that you expect um, journalists um, or wannabe journalists to do. Um, university newspaper edited that, um, worked on my local paper, hospital radio, it, the list goes on. Um, but um, I, my trajectory at that point was into newspapers, as you mentioned, Laurel. So um, I was fortunate enough to um, get a scholarship to, um, to the Sunday Times, and that's where I did my, my uh, kind of 
hack training, so to speak. Um, and they taught me the the tricks of the trade, you know, learnt my, um, my, got my kind of wings, so to speak, as a cub reporter um, and um, was doing investigations there, which was really great. And I, I got to do that also at the Sunday Telegraph. But I think my proudest piece is always going to be um, when I actually joined the Lawyer magazine as a senior reporter. Um, and I um, won a newspaper uh, journalist of the year uh, for a piece um, around the coal miners' compensation scheme, where I outed you all, you evil lawyers, um, for um, managing to get £1 billion in fees out of the compensation um, scheme. So obviously not you guys at CMS. Um, <laughs> but um, the result of it was that um, some at, at one particular law firm ended up folding um, because of, of, of their actions. Uh, during that time. So um, so that was a really uh, big moment for me. Uh, Tony Blair was the prime minister back then, so it was a while back, um, and he called for an inquiry into what was happening with the coal miners' compensation scheme. And it was actually after the Lawyer magazine that I jumped ship over to the broadcast world, taking a substantial pay cut uh, to join the BBC as a, a trainee, uh, because at this point, obviously, all I have is is my print background, um, and, uh, yeah, so I learnt my ways um, in terms of, um, you know, TV, radio uh, and online by moving to Manchester and uh, working up in that in that kind of place as well. So, so that's kind of, sorry, very quick, not that quick, but potted history <laughs> of, of how I uh, did my, got, got my kind of journalism uh, kind of accolades, I suppose, along the way. <laughs> Speaking to a couple of lawyers, I'm particularly intrigued by the fact that you did a law degree first and have actually used your analytical skills um, in the context of a different career. So I think that's super interesting. But I wanted to pick up on something that you mentioned. So you started in print and then transitioned more to sort of digital and broadcasting. So I was curious how you found that transition and what you see as being the core differences between the two, as I imagine there are quite a few. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think um, TV is my passion now, um, being a kind of um, output editor for, for the national TV bulletins. And, you know, with um, print journalism, you're trying to paint a picture uh, with your words, um, trying to describe what, you know, what you're trying to get across. And I suppose with TV, we have the we have the picture to do that already. So, you know, the way that you write and script changes as a result of um, the medium that you're working in. I think that was probably the biggest difference. Um, you still have to write a deadline. It doesn't matter which medium you're working in. Um, you're, the, the basics of journalism are still the same. Um, again, doesn't matter what medium you're working in. But also, um, it's just about kind of changing the way that you're writing or the way that you're um, editing a piece, depending on your audience. And I think that's probably the the bigger difference, actually, than what medium you're working in is who you're who are you targeting this at? So um, we always kind of use that example of, um, you know, certain uh, media uh, like the, the Sun newspaper, for example, they'll be looking at um, writing with more simplistic language. Whereas if you're um, the Sunday Times, you'll be perhaps using something a bit more complicated. It's the same with the BBC. You know, you're looking at, you know, what is your outlet? 
Um, so if I'm writing for uh, Newsround or uh, One Extra, I'm going to be writing in a, in a very different way to what I'm doing for perhaps the six and ten. So, you know, again, it's kind of that tailoring to your audience, I suppose. As you describe, it can be quite a high pressure environment in journalism and broadcast. So if you could go back in time, is there anything you would do differently? Is there anything I would do differently? I mean, I think one of the things that um, I would do differently is maybe speak up a bit more, actually. Um, and, and this kind of leads into to where I am now, I suppose, in, in my role um, as creative diversity lead. Um, my, my current role is all about um, ensuring that our content is reflective of society. And I think perhaps when I was younger, I would just do what I was told, if that makes sense, even if I didn't really agree with it. Um, so I don't know, for example, being someone um, from an Indian background, I might get put on the terrorist story um, because they think that I'll be able to connect with them better. Um, the fact that, you know, I'm just from Essex and, you know, grew up um, <laughs> not really in in that kind of community that they were thinking of um, didn't really kind of cross people's minds. So um, perhaps I could have spoken up a bit sooner and say, well, actually, I don't know if I'm definitely the right person for this. There might be someone else who's got a bit more experience, a bit more knowledge. Um, though, I say that, it was a great experience for me. I learned loads um, through, through that work. Um, but yeah, I think being able to give some more perspective from my own positioning would have been something um, that I would probably have liked to have done a bit more of. Um, I love the high power pressure kind of thought that, that you're talking about as well there, Laurel. I think, you know, if you love a deadline, you you love journalism. I mean, it's a real adrenaline kick um, to, to know that, you know, you're making the almost impossible possible. And I think that's really quite exciting. Um, and so I definitely wouldn't change that. Um, I, I suppose the other thing I would have changed is, like maybe you've asked for more money earlier <laughs> along the way but um yeah overall I think it's really about speaking up um for me that's all so interesting um I think now's a good time to turn perhaps to trends in the news industry so obviously you are um creative diversity lead at the BBC, but you're also keeping your finger in the pot by um, continuing to do some reporting. And I'm just curious what you feel are the key trends in the news industry today? Yeah, I mean, there's just, it's such a moving beast at the moment, isn't it? I mean, COVID has changed so much. Technology is continuously changing and moving forward. Um, so, I mean, we were talking about this literally yesterday when I was in the newsroom um, about how um, there was a there was a line about how Brexit negotiations aren't really moving forward at the moment. And, you know, this time last year, that would have probably been, a you know, a first or second story uh, in a news bulletin that we were doing. Um, and it only made um, a 15 second summary uh, yesterday on the news. So in terms of um, kind of editorially, obviously, there's only one story in town, and that is um, how we're responding to COVID um, and the impact that that has. What is changing continuously is where we put the emphasis. So, you know, when I first started in journalism, it was seen as, you know, the journalist's job to um, educate um, and that you would tell 
audiences, um, you know, what was going on and where we needed to be. Um, whereas now we have a, a more responsive approach. And I think that very much is as a result of changes in technology with social media coming in. Um, so, you know, the audience um, are kind of the, the priority. So obviously we have a mantra at the BBC, inform, educate and entertain. Um, and we take our lead very much from looking at what the audiences um, are expecting of us uh, now. And I think that's a real kind of sea change, not only at the BBC, but actually across the media. And that's really down to the impact of social media itself. Um, because now that we can hear voices and opinions more immediately, we've got a better idea and understanding of, you know, what we need to be doing to, to be making sure that people are getting that information, education and entertainment that we should be providing. You mentioned a bit about the role of journalists in educating people and also touched on social media as well. And obviously, in the past years, we've seen quite an uptick in the amount of fake news out there. Do you think that journalists and producers have a role to play in combating the spread of fake news? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 110%. Um, yeah, we, we definitely need to be um, at the forefront of helping um, everyone understand what, what is real news. Um, and actually what we do at the BBC is um, we have something called the Real News uh, Workshops. And what we do is we run these um, in schools. Well, we used to run them in schools. We now run them virtually, um, <laughs> like with everything, um, where we will um, actually go to um, talk to students um, about how they can actually spot uh, real and fake news. And actually, there is a, if you Google um, something called iReporter, you guys can have a go as well. Um, it's just basically a little kind of mini game to, you know, what's it like in the newsroom? How do we work out what's real news and what's fake news? Um, and there's a real effort across the media to make sure that um, fake news isn't getting out there as much um, as it had been in the last kind of couple of years. So you'll see in Facebook, Google, you know, they've changed their algorithms. We work together um, across all different um, parts of the creative industries to make sure that um, that side of things is um, a lot more robust and a lot more um, strength. There's a lot more strength to that side of things. Um, and, um, yeah, I really recommend playing that game, by the way. I think it's brilliant. Um, <laughs> I've, I've played it a couple of times myself, I have to admit. Um, but we also um, teach our own um, journalists about how they can spot fake news on a regular basis to make sure they're up to date um, with all the different types of things that you can, um, types of tools that are out there. So one thing that I always really love um, is that, you know, if it if it looks too real to be real, then it probably it's probably fake. Um, so there, there used to be this... Um, iconic image of a, a deer um, which was just staring down the barrel of a camera with a forest on fire. Um, and what they do is um, there's this um, kind of little course that they do internally where they show you how that picture was made um, and how you can see whether something is real or not and using reverse, reverse imagery tools, um, how you can really um, tackle that kind of fake news side of things. So, so there's lots of things that we're doing. Um, and I think, you know, as you say, education, again, is really important um, for, from that perspective. Speaking of education, um, one of the questions that we also had um, that we were thinking about is how to engage a younger audience um, in terms of getting them exposure to quality journalism. 
Um, ashamed to say that I know a lot of people who get their news pretty much exclusively from social media sites, which obviously isn't ideal, um, as these are also, you know, a lot of fake news and things that aren't necessarily completely legit get spread on social media. So I was curious, I know that there's a big push at the BBC to, um, to get exposure for younger audiences. And I was curious what your thoughts on that push are and what and what journalists can do to really appeal to younger audiences who might not be getting their news from the most reliable of sources. Yeah, I mean, if, if you've got um, answers on a postcard to um, how we can um, get more um, young people engaged in the news, that would be, um, the and, and, you know, real news, that would be amazing. Um, yeah, we've got tons of different initiatives um, looking at this. Obviously, the the real news one that I talked about um, that we do. We have something called BBC Young Reporter. Um, so we're trying to get um, uh, younger people to actually just do some reporting um, for us. And we kind of, well, not for us, but, you know, through our kind of teaching. Um, and then they can end up on a BBC platform. Um, but a lot of it is around um, trying to get into the spaces that they're in. So um, that's a real focus for us is, um, you know, making sure that our content is getting um, to them. Because at the end of the day, I suppose when I was younger, um, there were only five channels um, and radio um, where you didn't have social media. So you were born and brought up with traditional media, which you knew you could trust and rely on. Whereas now, as you say, um, We've in in this space now where there's so much media opportunity and and a lot of opportunity for uh, disinformation. We need to be in the places where they're getting that. Um, so it's it's a little tricky in terms of from our perspective because we're having to essentially kind of chase the tail a little bit, I have to admit, um, on on that side of things. Uh, so, yeah, answers on a postcard will be uh, brilliant <laughs> on that front. I think on the topic of access to news and just the industry in general, it's quite a good time to lead on to creative diversity and sort of access to the, the career of journalism and broadcast. So talking about creative diversity, could you tell us a bit about the work you've been doing and what is the 5050 project and how did you get involved? So, as I kind of mentioned earlier, creative diversity as a unit, it's um, it's headed up by um, June Sarpong, um, who's our creative diversity uh, director. Her position was created last year, and our unit is only is actually one year old, I think, um, in October. So, uh, which is great. Um, and um, the whole point is to make sure that our content is reflective of society. And the reason for that is partly because of the idea of um, how do we attract different audiences. And, you know, if our content is reflective of our audiences, then they're more likely to uh, consume our content. And that's um, exactly what we found through the 5050 project. Um, and the 5050 project, or as it's officially called now, 5050 the Equality Project, and I'll explain why later, um, this project was all about um, how do we increase women's representation on our content. And it started um, in the London newsroom back in 2017 with one programme, Outside Source, um, and its presenter, Ros Atkins. Um, he um, he was, uh, it was like Christmas time 2016. He was um, travelling over to Cornwall um, and he was listening to a BBC radio station and for a couple of hours didn't hear a single female voice. 
And he thought, in 2016, how can this be? How can this be the situation? And so like all normal people, he uh, used his Christmas to think about this very, <laughs> very heavily. Um, and he came back to the newsroom. He decided to ask his team whether they would be guinea pigs in a little experiment that he wanted to try. And that was a simple experiment of how can we monitor our content and count the number of men and women that we control and see how we can reach 50% women representation on that content. Um, it took them a few months because they were under 40% when they first started, which was a shock to them in the first place. But it took them a few months. They reached 50% women. And then um, once they proved the model, they uh, basically started um, word of mouth, sharing it with others in the newsroom um, until Tony Hall, the then director general, heard about it. And he set a challenge to the rest of the BBC to join the 80 news teams to come on board and see how many could reach 50 cent women um, by the month of um, April 2019. And um, that was around the time when I, well, I joined a bit before, I joined in, uh, when did I join? This is a good question. Um, I joined in um, summer of 2018 um, and um, my job was to try and get those teams uh, to sign up to 50-50 and to um, see how many of them could reach 50% women um, in that first challenge. And so in our first challenge, we reached 57% um, of the teams reached 50% women. <laughs> Slightly complicated um, in, that first, um, in that first challenge, which was amazing because they started at 26%. Um, when, so when we say started at, this is like their first month when they come and join the project. Um, we use a kind of a benchmarking thing where we say, right, this is what your first month is. Now that's, that's what you want to improve on. Um, so it was amazing to see that amazing kind of growth there. And then, um, yeah, so I was doing that full time. So I'd left the newsroom for, for that period um, just to focus on this. And I think it comes back to what we were talking about before. Um, you know, what did I regret before? And that's like not having a voice. Um, and I think this was one of the things that it really stood out. You know, you can really give women voices um, through this project. And that's what really excited me about it. Um, and now, you know, roll forward um, to 2020 and um, we've got a, a, a team dedicated now to 50-50, which is brilliant. Um, and we saw this March at the next, at the last challenge um, that even in lockdown, because that was when the world went into lockdown in March, um, two thirds of the teams that were still on air, because obviously not many of us were, um, managed to reach 50% women. So you can see even in that, period of time there was an there was nine percentage points increase in the number of women who were involved in um in our content so that was amazing it was a really amazing thing to see um so you know so that's 50 50 we're now moving into um an, a kind of a new space as well um, we're looking at how we use the core principles of 50 50 and how we translate that to ethnicity and disability uh, which we're announcing at the end of october so it's really uh, quite an exciting uh, time for us within that project. Um, and in terms of the rest of the unit, oh, wow, we've got so many different um, things that we're doing. Um, we announced um, a hundred million pounds uh, ring fenced, ring, I can never say that, a hundred million pounds money ring, ring fenced <laughs> for um, creating uh, TV content, uh, which um, has to have at its heart diversity. 
Um, and that fund starts um, in April next year for three years um, and has been uh, run by my uh, colleague, Michelle Matheson, um, and our head of diverse, creative diversity, uh, Miranda Whalen. Um, we've got um, countless other things that um, I'm sure I could bore you with, but I will stop there. <laughs> oh, no, this is far from boring. I think these are all sound like fantastic initiatives. And um, ring fence is it's not the easiest word. <laughs> um, I was just curious because obviously such great initiatives and seems like uh, you guys are doing some incredible work in the diversity space. But I was curious about whether the Black Lives Matter movement has at all influenced the narrative of what you guys have been working towards in, in recent months. Maybe it hasn't, but I was just curious to know if you thought that it had, and if so, how? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it's definitely focused minds. Uh, there is no doubt about that. Um, the 50-50 uh, ethnicity monitoring, we started piloting that at the beginning of the year. So it was before um, before BLM. But what happened was quite interesting. So we had um, originally about 20 pilot teams, um, and now we have 60. So, so you can see the impact, people starting to think about the need um, to ensure that they've got more diverse content has 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 had a refocus there. Um, again, we we'd started some language work um, around diversity before BLM, but the impact of um, it has been to help focus the fact that we need to be more careful with our language, and I think that's extremely important. And we've got the that coming out um, towards the end of autumn, the results of that that work. Um, so yeah, so I would say that BLM has focused minds on the fact that we need to have more diverse thought in our newsrooms. So I think that was a real big shock factor for a few uh, people that um, they weren't necessarily sure how they needed to to react to BLM. Um, we, you know, the other things that kind of have, you can kind of see happening are um, that people are kind of reaching out a bit more, reaching out, what a phrase, I don't know why I do that, um, <laughs> people get in touch um, to ask more about, um, you know, the language that they're using or whether, you know, if they don't feel confident about a certain thing, then, you know, making, they feel now that they feel a bit more empowered that they can actually ask um, and because I think there was a real feeling um, across not just the BBC, but across the media that, you know, as I was talking about before, that we're the teachers and that we impart knowledge. Um, whereas now, I think there's a real understanding that everyone's human and, you know, we all learn together. Um, and I think that's really a lot more healthier, actually, in an approach to ensuring that everyone is a bit more collegiate, everyone can collaborate and be together and, and especially when you have something like BLM, um, where everyone needs to understand the roots of something. Um, and I think that's quite powerful. Yeah, completely. And I think it comes back to what you're saying, you know, the more diverse a business is, the more reach you'll have, more audiences you can reach, because, you know, people can can access content that they, they identify with. And then our final question that we wanted to ask you was, who is your favourite character on the BBC? I know Eliza's got one in mind, and mine would have to be Luther. Why Luther? I want to know. 
I just love the programme. I think he's brilliant and his voice in particular. Just, just <laughs> brilliant. That's all I'm going to say on that topic. <laughs> I know where you're coming from on that front, though, Rory. <laughs> What's yours, Eliza? Uh, for the listeners out there, you can't see Laurel's face, but she's very red right now. <laughs> so <laughs> great job, Laurel. Uh, mine is David Tennant's The Doctor on Doctor Who. Classic character. Great incarnation. He's brilliant. I mean, David Tennant in anything is awesome, I think. I mean, just I'm an absolute fan. Um, ooh, my favourite character. Mm. If yours is David Tennant, um, oh, is the Doctor. I, do you know, I, can I pick two? I'm going to pick two. I've got um, Sherlock Holmes. I love um, the um, Cumberbatch version. Absolutely brilliant. I mean, just just seeing kind of how the mind works and you know the logic and the investigation obviously that feeds to my journalist in me um so I absolutely love love that and then the other thing I was wondering I was thinking about because your name is Eliza it made me think of Eliza Bennett or Elizabeth Bennett from Pride and Prejudice which is an old school BBC thing (laughs) oh is there anything better than that version of Pride and Prejudice I defy you I defy you to find a more iconic Mr. Darcy. Absolutely. Uh, uh, so happy you said that. Um, <laughs> and on that note, we just want to thank you so much, Nina, for coming. It was an amazing interview, and you've said some incredibly interesting things and given us some real insight into your career and the broadcast news industry, especially in these weird times. So just wanted to thank you so much. And it's been really interesting also to hear about your work in creative diversity. And it sounds like you guys are doing some amazing things in that space. So um, this has been CMS Presents Buzz Me In. And thank you so much for listening, everyone. <laughs>